we're going to be in Matthew 16 today. I'm looking forward to what God is going to do among us today as we're in this passage. Uh, Matthew 16, and we're going to begin in verse 24. Um, It'll be on the screen behind me. If you could stand to your feet, and we'll read together. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. You can take your seats. Right. Here's my one point this morning, and we're going to flesh this out in our time together. Jesus calls us to die, do like, and deny. I'm going to explain what I mean by that in a second. Jesus calls us to die, do like, and deny. And I'm asking the question, why? Well, there's three reasons. Because we find life when we lose it. Because we lose what we hold on to anyway. And because time is short. So Jesus gives this warning, and then he fleshes it out in the statements that follows. He gives this call to us to die, and then he fleshes it out afterwards. Now, I just want to remind you what's happening in Matthew 16. A couple of weeks ago, Jim was preaching on this passage, and what we know in verse 21 is that Matthew 16 marks a shift in the gospel. As a matter of fact, you can read about this not only in Matthew but in Mark and Luke as well. And this is a shift that you're going to feel from this point on in our sermon series because Jesus begins to talk about things that he had not talked about up until this point, mainly that he was going to have to suffer. So it says in verse 21 that from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now remember, this is the first time this kind of talk is hitting his disciples' ears. They've heard Jesus describe other things. They've heard him talk about his kingdom. They've seen him demonstrate his kingdom. And by and large, that kingdom's inbreaking into the human experience has looked like victory, right? Demons go running. People are getting healed. You know, people are coming to repentance, even in the ministry of John the Baptist, Before Jesus, but now Jesus changes his tone a little bit and he begins to say something that he hadn't emphasized before, and that is his suffering. And Jim told us a few weeks ago that not only is this the first time the disciples are hearing this from Jesus, but in the expectation of the Jewish people for a deliverer, for a Messiah, the idea that that person would suffer had not been connected in their collective Jewish consciousness. So this is new for them. They didn't have a category for this. And of course, as we learned two weeks ago, Peter's response is to try to talk Jesus out of this, right? To try to say to him, no, you don't need to do this. And Jesus gives him one of the strongest rebukes that he gives anyone in the Gospels because he is insisting that there is no kingdom without a cross. Those two things can't be separated. As a matter of fact, it would be fair to say, do do you remember what, Uh, Jesus says to Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. 
you know, when Jesus tries to stop him, it would be fair to say that Jesus is insinuating that a kingdom without a cross is Satan's idea, but it's not God's idea. And in his ministry, these two things are going to come together very well, suffering and victory. Now, those are two things that at first glance don't seem like they fit together very well. And I think Christians throughout the ages have struggled to know how do we fit these two big emphases in Scripture. Then on one hand, Jesus is victorious, he's overcome the world, and on the other hand, he gives us this call to take up a cross and follow him into suffering like he went into suffering. How do those two things fit together? You know, one place that I have seen this uh, fit together really well has actually been in my relationship with historically African-American churches in Aliquippa. You know, it's interesting. When a church or a group of churches has historically gone through suffering, you are kind of forced to join together these two things. That all at once, Jesus is overcomer and victorious and deliverer, and also he is the one who identifies with us in our suffering. Um, Take, for instance, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, probably the oldest black denomination in the United States, founded not long after the United States was first founded. Um, it's really a church, a denomination of martyrs. You know, that church has people who died at the hands of other people, whose buildings were burnt. Even here in Aliquippa, the first AME church here in Aliquippa um, was burnt once or twice, I believe, uh, before it got to its current location. Now, that's uncomfortable for us to talk about sometimes because it's easier for us to talk about persecution when it's coming from the hands of different religions, right? But it's harder to talk about persecution when it's coming at the hands of those who at least claim to also be believers, right? Who claim to be Christians. Nonetheless, it's the story of that church. And, and there's this beautiful interweaving that has happened over the last couple hundred years of understanding that Jesus is deliverer, but he also identifies with us in our suffering. I saw this one time when I was at a funeral in Aliquip. I wasn't participating in the funeral, um, but I, me and Steve went to it. A young man had tragically died. Actually, Anthony, you may have been playing at it. I'm not sure. Um, and I remember at the time that we walked in, you know, sanctuary is packed, filled with people. There were two things happening simultaneously. One was that the casket was being closed in front of the family, right? And if you've ever faced death, if you know the pain of it, you know that that moment is one that will uncork grief that you didn't know you had, you know, inside of you. And so that grief opened up in the room, you know? I mean, wailing, mourning. There was no, no trying to hide it. This was an awfully painful moment. And here's what I remember. was the choir in the background getting louder and louder and louder in high praise. You know, and it was interesting because it would have been appropriate to sing a sad song. It's okay to sing sad songs at funerals, but that's not what they chose. They chose this song of high worship, declaring Jesus to be victorious. And as the mourning got louder, so did the worship. And I just remember those two things like competing in the room. It was a powerful moment. But not only was it a powerful moment, it's also good theology. Because this is exactly what the Bible teaches. Listen, if it feels like those two things don't fit together very well, a casket closing and high worship, um, it might be the case, but it's what Scripture teaches, right? There are parts of Scripture that don't seem like they fit together very well. The Bible like holds out 
these two realities, that Jesus is our overcoming, victorious one, and he's also our suffering servant. And the attitude of the Bible is like, just deal with it, right? It's not even trying to make this fit together in a neat system, right? As a matter of fact, when we try to fit it together in a neat theological system, we end up missing the point. It's like these two things just exist next to each other and just deal with it, that Jesus is both of these things. And so I've been thinking about what it means for us to be healthy emotionally as a church because both of these realities are present in scriptures. And um, as I've been thinking about emotions, I've been thinking a lot about emojis on my phone because they really help me express my emotions sometimes. You know, sometimes I can't say it, but I can text it to you with an emoji, you know? And Apple has just done such a great job at identifying the full range of human emotions. So sometimes we feel like this. Letha, if you could put it up, right? And listen, I love it when we feel like this in church, right? We were just saying, I feel alive in the rib, right? That's that emoji, right? And that's, that's great. But I also think we have to have room for more emotional expression, right, in the church than just that. So what about this emoji, right? Because if you look in the Psalms, you'll find this as well. David was very comfortable grieving in the presence of the Lord in worship. He was very comfortable bringing his complaints before the Lord. Or even, you see this in the Psalms, the next one, what about that? The doubt emoji, The doubt emoji is allowed in church. I just want to tell you that. God isn't threatened by our questions, right, church? He's not threatened by us wondering, you know, when it feels like things don't fit together. And I am sometimes encouraged. It's one of the things that makes the Bible seem so real to me. I'm so often encouraged by uh, David being comfortable and other psalm writers being comfortable laying their questions, you know, before the Lord, wondering why do the wicked prosper? You know, David asked at one point, why does it seem like those who are doing wrong always get blessed, right? He just says it to the Lord. You know, he doesn't have this religious attitude, this pious attitude that's trying to stuff that down inside and not say it. It's appropriate in worship. As a matter of fact, it makes it into our Bibles. Or this one, even our frustrations, our anger, right? This is in the Psalms. You know, we don't always quote these Psalms because they make us uncomfortable still, right, in church, What are we supposed to do with David saying, Lord, would you crush the teeth of the wicked, smash the teeth of the wicked? feels too harsh for us, but it's part of the emotional expression that the Bible is really comfortable with. As a matter of fact, the more I think about it, I think that all of the emotions, all of the emojis (laughs) ought to be able to make it into church, (laughs) right? Now listen, this doesn't mean sometimes the emoji that we're on is the emoji we expect the whole room to be on, right? And it shouldn't have to be that way either. I've seen happy people that are upset when someone starts crying, and they're like, oh, that was a downer, you know, on our meeting. And I've seen people who are sad, who really get bitter when other people in church are happy, right? And it shouldn't be that way either. This is what the Bible says. Learn to weep with those who weep. And to rejoice with those who rejoice. Learn to be with each other in both of these um, experiences of the gospel. The victorious risen Christ and the suffering servant Christ. Because he comes into our midst as both of these. Now this next emoji I'm not sure what to do with. 
I don't know what it means. I think that's the, it was a good offering in church emoji. That's the best that I can think of. And I was mistaken. There's one emoji that's not allowed in church. It's this next one. All right. <laughs> if you put that, if you text, if you post to Facebook from church and that's at the end of your post, then we're going to have a talk. All right. So with being comfortable with the full range of emotional expression, this is what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 24. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. There's this call to die. Jesus says, take up your cross. To do like Jesus did, to follow him, which we've been talking about through this whole series, and to deny ourselves. Jesus says that whoever wants to follow must deny themselves. You know, first of all, this call to take up the cross, you know, Jesus actually hasn't told his disciples yet how he's going to die. That's coming. He's going to tell them eventually. But he actually hasn't said it to them yet, but he starts to use this language of the cross with discipleship. And you can be sure that the Jewish disciples who are listening to him as those who are being occupied by a Roman military force knew what the cross was. And the cross isn't just a little bit of suffering. They would have understood exactly what he was saying, that the call to take up the cross is a call to die. Because the only people in their day who ever took up a cross were those who were also going to be nailed to it and be left to die on it. And so Jesus is being very clear here that the call to follow him is a call to die. It's a serious call. He says, to follow me. Um, to do like Jesus does. We've been saying that to follow Jesus means more than just believing some things about him. It means in the expression of our lives to act on those beliefs and to begin to live like he lived and even still lives through us by his Holy Spirit. And so we begin to follow him. And listen, Jesus went into suffering and this means that his people will as well, right? Um, Jesus is saying, there's no way to follow me that's going to avoid suffering. And by the way, Jesus here is not talking about the kind of suffering that just happens in life because we live in a broken world. You know, we've all experienced that. Things like, you know, sickness and, and bad circumstances and all of those kinds of things. We've all experienced that reality. And sometimes I'll even hear Christians say, well, it's just my cross to bear, to, to bear. But that's not exactly what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is talking about a particular kind of suffering. He's not talking about suffering for suffering's sake. He's talking about the kind of suffering that comes when we make a willful choice to follow him where he is leading us. And he's saying, there will be times when I say, disciple, it's time for you to follow me. And yes, you can see that the place I'm leading you is going to require that you take on suffering that you endure suffering. And Jesus is saying, when that call comes, that's part of the call I'm giving you, your answer needs to be yes. And of course, then the, the call is to deny ourselves, to say, Jesus, your will, not my will. Your priorities, not my priorities. I deny my rights so that I can come under into alignment with your will for my life and the lives of the people around us. This is a hard word, isn't it, church? This is something difficult that Jesus says. But listen, we have to be truthful with each other about this. Don't you love how Jesus does not play games with his disciples? Don't you love that about him? You know, he's not as some gimmicky salesman 
right? Trying to just do anything to keep them following him. He's shooting straight with them. And he's told them many wonderful things. You'll have power. I'll make you fishers of men. But this is also true, that you will suffer. He's being real with them. I just want to say this. We have to be real. For those of us who have kids, grandparents, young people that we're mentoring, we have to be real about this aspect of the gospel call with the young people who are in our, in our lives. Amen? And I say that because sometimes I think a pressure rises up in us, whether it's our own kids or the kids that we're working with in ministry. A pressure rises up in us to try to, like, trick young people into the gospel, you know, to try to, to, try to make it cool enough, fun enough, engaging enough that they will stick around. And we begin to say things like, you know what, if we don't do that, if we can't make it cool enough, fun enough, engaging enough, then they're not going to stick around. But you know what? That's a curse. It's a curse to say that. Because here's the deal. When Jesus makes this call, he's actually asserting two very bold things about himself. First of all, he's asserting his lordship. He's asserting his place, not just among the disciples in their lives, but his place in the universe. He's saying, I'm Lord. And when I call, even if it requires suffering, that's the call that I'm extending to you, and it's my right to do it because I'm Lord. He's asserting his lordship. But he is also asserting, catch this, his irresistibility. Jesus knows. Look, one of these disciples is going to deny him. Jesus knew that. But the others would follow. And as a matter of fact, many of them would follow to their literal death. Jesus is asserting this about himself too, that his love that we just sang about and celebrated is irresistible. And we have got to stop saying that our young people won't be willing to die for Jesus. Come on, church. We have to be willing. Listen, we have to, we have to say Jesus is so irresistible in his love. He's so wonderful in his grace that it's not just me that's willing, when I gaze on that, it's not just me that's willing to lay down everything, but my kids will be willing to as well. And so I can hold this out to them and trust in the irresistibility of Jesus, right? That he will draw them. Listen, I'm all about having fun in church. We come alive in the river. I just had emojis on the screen, right? I'm all about having fun in church. I'm all about making things engaging for our kids. I'm all about that. But ultimately, listen, this is not a matter of fun and engagement and our best efforts. This is a matter of Jesus encountering our young people like he encountered his disciples. And he did such a good job at it that they were willing quite literally to lay down their lives in the end, right? That's what I want for our young people, you know? I don't want to trick them into thinking it's something different when it's not. Jesus is wonderful enough to die for. So Jesus gives this call, and then he gives three short, what I'm calling warning promises, to help us process what he knew would be our fearful response to this call. Jesus knew that when he said this to the disciples, you've got to die, do like, and deny, he knew that there, what was going to rise up in them was fear. And so he says three following statements, and they're both warnings and promises at the same time. So first of all, in verse 25, he says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus says, embrace the call of suffering because when you trust Jesus with our lives, when we give that over to him, 
we find that we actually gain real life. That it's in losing our life that we find it. Now, listen, this term finding life is probably the best way to understand it is in other parts of the gospel. The word salvation is used. That's what that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying there's a quality of life that is found when we give everything over to Jesus. We find true life, life that lasts forever because it has its source in God. Now, Jesus in his teaching all throughout the Gospels has these upside-down statements, right? The first will be last, the last will be first. But there is probably no stronger statement than this one, that the one who loses what is most essential to them, their very life, and is willing to trust Jesus with that, will find, surprisingly, that they have life in the end. So the warning is this, that if we try to hold on to what we think is life, what we call life, but really isn't, in the end, we'll lose that too. But if we can give him everything, then we will find a greater life than we ever thought was possible, even in the midst of our suffering. Secondly, Jesus says in verse 26, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Does that sound familiar to you, gain the whole world? Because it was said to Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. Do you remember who said it to him? Satan. Satan came to him and said, if you bow to me, I'll give you the whole world, right? And everything in it. Jesus here is talking about a temptation that he overcame himself that he resisted, and it was to take the stuff of this life and be so so uh, short-sighted that we take the stuff of this life and miss the long uh, haul picture, right? So Jesus here is saying, like, look, you can gain all of the material things in this life, cars and money and houses and stuff, but in the end, you lose your soul. And it's not a fair exchange. It's not a good exchange, It's not worth it. And I think he's also talking about immaterial things that we so often value, status and comfort and power, all of the things that we brag about. Have you been around people? Listen, whatever people brag about is what they value, right? I get around some people, and all they want to talk about is their stuff, you know? I know know some people who have a lot of stuff, but that's not what they want to talk about. You know, they want to talk about something deeper, but I know some people who have stuff or even don't have stuff and want to talk like they have stuff. You know what I mean? They just want to talk about stuff all the time. Listen, that's a dangerous place to be in. The warning is that there's so many things that we just don't take into eternity. You know, some things we do. Jesus says, lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. There are some things that we'll take, you know, into eternity, but there's so much that we don't. And Jesus is saying, don't exchange your soul for that stuff. You know, And the promise is, and this is a promise for all of us, that even if we don't get a lot of stuff in this life, material or immaterial, money or status or power, whatever, even if we don't get a lot of stuff, it is still possible in the end to be rich in the kingdom of God because we decided to follow Jesus. And last, because the time is short, Jesus says this in verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Consistently in the New Testament, The promises that Jesus is coming back again are motivation for how we live in this life. Listen, the warning is this. When Jesus comes back, don't be found worrying about things that don't matter in the end anyway. You know, when Jesus comes to set up his kingdom, so many of the things we fretted about, worried about, just aren't going to matter. 
And the, the writers of the New Testament say, listen, let that motivate you to live differently in this life, to prioritize your life differently. But the promise is this. Jesus just said he was going to suffer, right? See, here's that paradox. He said he was going to suffer. Now he's talking about coming on the clouds of heaven with angels. See, what's assumed in there is his resurrection. Listen, we do read this passage about this call to suffering on this side of the resurrection. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead, this undeniable fact that death could not keep its hold on him, is a promise to us that whatever suffering we go through, that Jesus will make it right, that it will be redeemed, and that ultimately we will be relieved from it, right? So Jesus is saying, when you embrace this call to suffer, remember where this is all headed, that I'm going to come and make the world right again. This is what I want to tell you this morning, that the only kind of discipleship that is free of fear is all in discipleship. Let me say that again. The only kind of discipleship that is free of fear is all in discipleship. How many of you have been to SportsWorks at the Carnegie Science Center? Have you been there? Uh, my kids love it there, and there's this, it's a great place, but there's this thing I hate in SportsWorks at the Carnegie Science Center. I, th- I feel like I may have referenced this in a sermon before, but it's just because I did. But it's just because I have internal issues, so pray for me about this. So they have this bike that you ride on top of this beam across the top of the building. I hate that thing, all right? And listen, I, and the reason is I just hate heights so much, and people have tried to help me. It's, I just hate it, all right? Some things I'll let get corrected in heaven. That's one of them, all right? I just hate heights so much. Now, there's some science behind this bike. The bike goes across this beam, and it has a counterweight hanging from the bottom of it. And so apparently it is scientifically impossible to fall off of that beam, but I ain't no scientist, you know what I mean? Like, whatever, you know, I guess, you know? Like, but I don't, I don't understand that stuff. So anyway, we took a bunch of the kids, once from Maliquip Impact, on a field trip to the Science Center, and there I am, being the good mentor adult that I'm supposed to be. I'm encouraging them to take this risk. It was so hypocritical because I wasn't about to take that risk, you know? But I was like, no, this is good for you. It's good for your character. You know, get, get on the bike, you know? You need to take the risk, you know? Try, the kids are getting on. They're scared. The science center staff, you know, is talking them through it. Of course, nothing happens. And I was, I was waiting for it. I knew eventually they were going to ask me, you know, to get on the bike. So then it came. Well, Mr. Joel, aren't you going to get on the bike? You know, I guess, yeah, build character, yeah. Um, so I did get on the bike, and here's, you know, they harness you. I mean, really, I know nothing's going to happen, but it's just so high, you know. And, and I, remember, I remember the Science Center staff telling me, don't fight it, right? Just go with it, you know, because, because if you pedal real slow and you try to balance yourself, that counterweight is moving the opposite of your mouth. So you're not going to fall, but it feels like you're going to fall. You know what I mean? If you go real slow. So they would say, just start pedaling, you know, and you'll see. You'll just go right out, and then you just pedal back, you know. The faster, the faster, the better, you know. Well, this is what I'm saying. Discipleship that is free of fear is discipleship where at the beginning we've decided to be all in with Jesus. You know, none of this pedaling a little bit. You know, If what we turn our Christian life into is a series of daily negotiations with Jesus, you know, 
Like, I'll do this, but I won't do that. Or, I'll, okay, but no, you know, and we're going back and forth. Then the, the negative effect on us is that it literally fills our lives with fear. As a matter of fact, if we can settle this, that Jesus called us to die, and we are literally willing to do it, if called upon, then so much other fear will evaporate out of our lives. I find it helpful in my Christian walk to run my fears through the prism of this call of Jesus to take up my cross. You know, so for me, I have two major fears in my life. I know this about me. Fear of rejection, so please accept me at the end of this service, all right? Fear of rejection and fear of failure, so please tell me I did a good job, okay? <laughs> um, fear of rejection and fear of failure are two dominant fears in my life. And sometimes they can really have a stranglehold on, hold on me. But listen, if I take that fear, you know, I'm afraid that if I say the truth in this sermon or if I say this thing to this person that I know I need to say, I'm afraid they'll leave the church. Fear of rejection, right? But if I run that through this grid, well, I already decided I'm willing to die. See, nothing worse can happen than that. I've already decided that if he asked for my life, I would lay it down, right? then it just evaporates the power of that fear in my life. See, what we're really afraid of is death. What we're really afraid of is death. And once Jesus settles this for us, that when we lose our life, we find it. You know, And once we trust him, the resurrected Christ, whose resurrection is proof that we can trust him in this, once that gets settled, then so many other fears will evaporate. You know, I traveled India with a good friend of mine, Stephen. He's ministering. He oversees 10,000 churches. I'm just like, pray for me, Stephen. Just keep praying for me. You know, a phenomenal leader. He's overseeing 10,000 churches. And, and many of these churches are suffering intense persecution. I was just at a prayer gathering with him in Atlanta. And he showed us a video. He wanted to show this group of largely American Christians this video of one of his pastors who he oversees just getting beaten bloody by people who came into their church to, to kill them. And it was a hard video. I'd never seen a video like that. But he said, you need to see this because this is our reality. You know, he said, you need to see what's happening. Listen, what does the author of Hebrews say? You have not resisted yet to the point of shedding blood. That's probably true for all of us in this room. You know, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I would venture to say that there's not one of us in this room that has shed blood that has resisted to the point of shedding blood. My friend Stephen and his pastors, it happens all the time. For us, you know what our issues are? We're, a lot of times we're not afraid that someone's going to break in here and beat us bloody you know, today. Largely, what we're afraid of is awkward. You know? Well, I'm afraid if I say that or if I'm obedient, it's going to be awkward. Awkward becomes the big thing that American Christians are afraid of. You know, or I'm afraid that I'm going to have to go through some discomfort or pain. Or I'm afraid that, um, you know, if, if Jesus' call on my life to deny myself is real, if the full force of that is real, then I'm going to feel uncomfortable. Those are the kinds of things that we face. But if we run those fears through the prism of what Jesus did for us. Listen, this is amazing. Everything Jesus is asking us to do in this passage, he did for, for us. We read on the screen, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Well, because Jesus hung there, and took the curse, now the one who takes up their cross is blessed, not cursed. He reversed it for us, you know? And listen, Jesus' emotional battle in this regard happened in the Garden of Gethsemane 
before he went to the cross. Do you remember this? There he is wrestling in his spirit, so real in his humanity, saying, God, Father, if there's a way for this cup to be passed from me, if there's a way for this to happen without me being nailed to that cross, then let it happen, begging his father, being tempted by the devil, but then he settled it, right? Not my will, but your will be done denied himself and went to the cross and we all became the beneficiaries of what he did. And this is why he calls us into this same way of life. He's not asking us to do anything that he didn't do himself. When we settle these fears, we live a freer Christian life than we ever thought was possible. You know? Because now I'm not afraid of death. I'm certainly not afraid of you. Right? Now I'm not afraid of death. I'm certainly not afraid of any kind of lesser suffering, right? Once this is settled, you know, for me. Um, And you will find that it will free other people also around you. Um, Because listen, the, the call that God has put on Chelsea, she should not have to process the call that God has put on her through the prism of my fears, right? Do you see what I'm saying? See, sometimes we're afraid and then we want people, especially our spouses, to partner with our fear, right? Well, no, I'm afraid, so you need to be too, you know? Well, you know, if Chelsea says, well, I feel like God is calling me to do this, well, that makes me feel afraid, so you can't, right? Um, But when I can say, oh, Chelsea, I already decided this, you know? This is settled in my heart. I will die for this. And there's no greater thing that we could do together as a couple than die for this. The same for our kids. I don't want my kids to have to process the call God has put on their life through the prism of my fears, right? My brave J.D., you know, who is so full of I don't know what. (laughs) But listen, listen, someday she's going to come to me and she's going to say, Daddy, Jesus is telling me to do this crazy thing. And I do not want her to have to process that through the prism of my fears. See, if this is settled, I'm willing to die. Then I can say to my son, my daughter, I can say the greatest privilege of our lives as a family, honey, is that you lay down your life. You know, if you died, I'd shed so many tears, but I'm not afraid of that pain, you know, because I know that this is what Jesus has called us to. And it frees her to follow and obey. When I asked Chelsea's dad, Um, If I can marry Chelsea, this was so powerful to me. One of the things he said to me is he said, Joel, we want you to know you have a blank check when it comes to to our permission for God's call on your life, you know? He said, if God takes you to the other side of the world and we don't see you very often, he said, we have eternity, you know? He said, we would shed tears, but we have eternity. What we want for our girls is that they give everything for Jesus. Do you know what kind of freedom that gave me and Chelsea when we moved on to Franklin Avenue? Do you know what kind of freedom that it freed us up? See, their freedom freed us up. I didn't have to worry about my in-laws questioning even our hard decisions, right? Because this had been settled. We're dying for Jesus. 